History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 127th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are bringing you the Ben Lomond Hotel. We're going to be in Utah again, Denise. Hey, we're going back to the state of my birth. (laughs) This was actually suggested to us by two listeners, John Mueller and Dean Carrington. And we had research assistance from Kristen Swintek. Before we get into that, we'd love to have you guys check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did mention Dean Carrington as one of the listeners that suggested this episode. And he also sent us a wonderful email that we greatly appreciated, just letting us know that he thought that our comments on Mormons and their beliefs on ghosts and such was pretty accurate. And he is a Mormon. So I want to thank him for that. Also, we want to wish... Lisa Nielsen, who suggested our oddity that you will hear on the show today. Good luck on her semester paper. It's coming up here, I believe, on June 1st. Okay, well, good luck with that. I hated papers when I was growing up. You still do. That's why I do the research. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) Speaking of which, we have the writing contest going on. The due date is August 27th, so you still have plenty of time to get in your flash fiction scary story for our anniversary show that will be up on October 1st. Every time you say flash fiction, I think of a flash dance mob. I'm like, hey, we could do a History Goes Bump like flash mob. That would be really fun at a graveyard or something. (laughs) Great, Denise. Wonderful idea. We also had Lauren post on the Spooktacular crew. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to say, hey, I live in Fort Worth, Texas. It may be blasphemy, but I really enjoy watching the ghost adventures. And that's how I really got into the paranormal. That's one thing the ghost shows did do. They did get people interested in ghosts and things. So blasphemy. (laughs) I wouldn't call it blasphemy. The theater I used to go to when I was a kid was reportedly haunted. A ton of my friends experienced things there. I wish it was still standing so that it could be investigated. I've never experienced anything, but I am a believer. I'm going backwards on the podcast, so I'm on 103 right now. And I just told her, generally, people start at the beginning and work their way forward. And so I always tell them, we get better as you go along. So, <laughs> so I, I told her, her we'll get worse <laughs> as you go along. We are going to stink by the time you get to number one. <laughs> Have fun with that, Lauren. <laughs> and we also got an email from Lisa Nielsen, who was the uh, our oddity suggester also. She said, my name is Lisa. I'm 22 and I was born and raised in Denmark and I discovered your podcast not too long ago. Since then, you've been a constant companion as I've gone about my daily life. I've always had a huge interest in history and spooky stuff. This is partially due to my mother's fondness for, and she put it as dragging the family along to see the many castles littered <laughs> all over Denmark during summer holidays and partially due to the fact that I grew up in a house with a lot of activity. Are we supposed to be 
feeling sorry for her at this point, being dragged to all these castles? Uh, that's what I told her. I said, oh, man, I wish my mom would have dragged me around. How horrible. Okay, so I'm going to tell on Diane because she used to complain about like how when she was little, her mom dragged her to all these historical places and everything, but she absolutely loves it now. Yeah, and a lot of the problem was the antique shops because you couldn't touch anything. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so, you know, when you're a kid and you're told, keep your hands in your pocket or else. That's true. Uh, this activity was both benevolent and malevolent with known and unknown sources. I consider myself an open-minded skeptic, though. I think it's arrogant to assume that we as humans know and understand everything, but I'm always looking for other explanations first. That sounds like us. I'd also like to thank you for being so easy to interact with. The phrase, it's like talking to old friends, has been used by many people about many podcasts, but this is the first time I feel like it's actually true. It's just nice to listen to you talk, and I learn a lot, especially since our history lessons focus more on European history than American. I can't say I've regretted joining the Spooktacular crew one bit. And then she gave us a couple of oddity suggestions, one of which you guys will hear on this episode. Denise, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Donna. Hey, Donna. And Lauren. Hey, Lauren. Are you ready to go to the Ben Lomond Hotel? I absolutely am. All right, pack your bags. Here we go. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. And This Moment in Oddity was suggested by listener Lisa Nilsson, who is from Denmark. One of Denmark's national symbols is a hero named Holger Dansk. Much of what is known about Holger is drawn from legend, although it is believed that he could be based on an actual historical figure. In the epic, The Chivalry of Ogier of Denmark, Holger is the son of the Danish king, Godfred, who died in 810. Their enemy was Charlemagne of France. He took Holger as prisoner, and Holger performed many amazing tasks for Charlemagne. Eventually, though, Holger would join the Franks in battle. It is said that Holger came to the end of his days, but that he did not die. Rather, he fell into a twilight sleep and slumbers to this day at the Kronborg Castle. Hans Christian Andersen wrote of Holger Dansk, and here's the translation of that poem. Quote, but the fairest sight of all is the old castle of Kronborg, and under it sits Holger Dansk in the deep dark cellar which no one enters. He is clad in iron and steel and rests his head on his stalwart arm. His long beard hangs down upon the marble table, where it has become stuck fast. He sleeps and dreams, but in his dreams he sees everything that comes to pass in Denmark. Every Christmas Eve, an angel of God comes to tell him that all he's dreamed is true and that he may go back to sleep again, for Denmark is not yet in any danger. But if it should ever come, then old Holger Dansk will rouse himself and the table will break apart as he pulls out his beard. Then he will come forth and strike a blow that shall be heard throughout all the countries of the world. End quote. Many Danes hold fast to this legend and have believed through the centuries that when they need him, Holger will awaken. 
that a hero of legend has become a national symbol, basically giving him life, whether he truly lived before, some people might think that it certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This day in history. This day in history is by April Rogers Crick. On this day, May 29th in 1912, 15 women lost their jobs for dancing the turkey trot. The women worked for Curtis Publishing Company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The company was a powerhouse in the flourishing magazine industry. Curtis published the Saturday Evening Post, which featured popular cover art by Norman Rockwell. They also published the Ladies' Home Journal, the first magazine to have one million subscribers. The Ladies' Home Journal had the widest circulation of a group of periodicals known as the Seven Sisters. They targeted a middle-class women's audience and included titles such as McCall's Women's Day and Good Housekeeping, all still very popular today. The magazines featured stories on homemaking, including how-to articles and advice columns. Edward W. Bach was the editor of the Ladies' Home Journal, and he heard that 15 of his employees had been dancing the turkey trot on their lunch break. He felt that this behavior did not fit into his magazine's ideas of the proper behavior for women. The Vatican had condemned the ragtime dance as too suggestive. Some dance halls had banned the step, but censorship only served to make it more popular with young people. Bach fired all 15 of the women when he found out about the dancing. The magazine went on to rail against future dance crazes, and in 1921 an article declared, The road to hell is too often paved with jazz steps. This is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring. It's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. The Ben Lomond Hotel is located in the historic downtown of Ogden, Utah. It is one of the last three grand hotels in Utah that still operates as a hotel. Built in the latter part of the Victorian era, the hotel has changed over time. The original five stories now rise to 11. Ogden was a major railroad junction and brought people from all over. And while a hotel is meant to be a place of comfort, the Ben Lomond seems to be a place of death. And this has led to stories of strange happenings. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Ben Lomond Hotel. The city of Ogden is in what is known as the Great Basin, which is the largest contiguous endorheic watershed in North America. Endorheic means that it is closed and does not flow out into rivers, but rather forms lakes. Since these watersheds are filled by rain, they tend to be arid areas. To give the listeners an idea of an endorheic landscape, the salt flat where speed records are set is one of those areas. Isn't that where, where they took that motorcycle? The Indian? I think so, to test it out because they, they do huge speed races down there. It's really cool. Exactly, and it's because of the fact that it's in the Great Basin and the salt causes everything to be very level. And that's why they like to use it because they don't have to worry about any turns or anything getting in their way. And nobody wants to live on it, so... Because of the lack of precipitation, people had to be hardy to live here. 
The first known groups here were the Fremont culture. Numic language speakers followed, and this indigenous group would become our present-day Western Shoshone and Paiute tribes. The Great Basin was home to the Utes Bear Dance, and two Paiute tribal elders introduced our favorite name dance, the Ghost Dance. (laughs) I love that name. It is believed that when this dance is done properly, the spirits of the dead can be reunited with the living. There was a primary reason for this dance's creation, and that was that Native people believed that the dead would fight on their behalf and help drive white settlers off the land. This is interesting to consider when looking at hauntings. You know, Denise, we've talked about, as we go back to the very original history on a lot of these properties, we look at, was this on Indian burial ground? And sometimes that seems to have some kind of effect in bringing about hauntings, and we don't know why, it's just one of those things. But when I was looking at this ghost dance and the idea that they thought that they could get the dead to fight on their behalf or drive white settlers off the land, I wonder how often this ghost dance was done and where it would be done. Because is it possible that it's not based just on burial sites, but maybe where they did this dance to try to drive white settlers off? Because what would drive people away? Would spirits. Be ghosts. Yeah, spirits or ghosts. So that made me wonder, what if these rituals have spawned some of these hauntings that are dating back for centuries? I mean, that's a good theory. I was like, okay, that throws another little wrench into the works, something else to look at when we're trying to figure out why is this happening? I just thought that was fascinating because as I was reading about it, I'm like, oh, what a cool dance. And then I went, wait a minute. What if they were doing this dance and they've not, I wouldn't say cursed it, but quote unquote, cursed the land there. Absolutely. So now I want a new shirt. Don't tempt the spirits, but if you want to dance, it's okay. Hashtag ghost dance. There we go. The first European settlers in the area built Fort Buenaventura in 1846. A trapper named Miles Goodyear established the permanent settlement and it served as a trading post. Mormon settlers bought the property in 1847, and it was renamed Brownsville after Captain James Brown. The name Ogden would follow, and the name was chosen in honor of Hudson Bay Company's brigade leader, Peter Skeen Ogden, who had been an early trapper here and was a Canadian explorer. By 1869, Ogden became a railroad hub of commerce and travel when the Transcontinental Railroad was built. The city's motto was, You can't get anywhere without coming to Ogden. Ogden would eventually grow to be the second largest city in the state of Utah. In 1891, the five-story Reed Hotel was built in Ogden. The ground floor of the hotel was occupied by the Ogden State Bank, which was owned by A.P. Bigelow. Bigelow saw Ogden as a very important city in the western U.S. and bought the hotel in 1926, which he raised. On the foundation of the former Reed Hotel, he built an 11-story hotel and named it after himself, the Bigelow Hotel. The new structure was meant to be more modern and specifically fireproof. Hodgson and McClenahan drew up the plans and it was built in the Italian Renaissance Revival style. The exterior is highly ornamental and covered in a terracotta finish. The Bigelow was meant to reflect the wealth of the community in the early 20th century. The hotel boasted five private-themed dining rooms, including the Shakespeare Room, which featured murals painted by LeConte Stewart, a Utah artist. Other themed rooms were the Florentine-style ballroom, English room with wood paneling based on Bromley Castle, an Arabian coffee shop, and a two-story penthouse. In 1928, the hotel hosted the Democratic National Convention. Leading up to this big event, Time Magazine featured the Bigelow Hotel in their October 3, 1927 issue, which garnered the hotel national attention. In 1933, the hotel was sold to Mariner Eccles when Bigelow's bank failed after the 1929 stock market crash. 
The Eccles family renamed the hotel the Ben Lomond after the mountains in the highlands of Scotland. The family had immigrated to America from Scotland. Mariner served as chairman of the Federal Reserve during the Franklin Roosevelt presidency, and the Federal Reserve headquarters in D.C. bears the name of Eccles. He was a millionaire by the age of 22. And this name might sound familiar to people, Denise, because when we talked about the Capitol Theater, one of their family members, I did a lot of searching and I couldn't figure out how she was related, but her maiden name is Eccles. So she's either a granddaughter or a niece of Mariner Eccles, but she's part of this Eccles family. And the the dance studio that was built on as part of the Capitol Theater has her name in it. I can't remember the entire name, but it has her name in it. So this Eccles family goes back pretty deep in Ogden. Oh, absolutely. Kind of like another family from Ogden. Would you be talking about a singing group, perhaps? I would be. And I don't think it's the Jacksons, so I think it, or the Jackson Five, so I think it might have been the Osmond brothers and their sister. <laughs> yeah, the Osmonds are from Ogden. After World War II, highway construction ramped up and the rail travel dwindled. So the town of Ogden was no longer a travel destination and the hotel was affected financially. During this time, the Ben Lomond went against the tide of segregation in Salt Lake City and welcome black celebrities like Louis Armstrong and Jackie Robinson to stay at the hotel. That's pretty cool. That is. There were gangsters at this hotel and plenty of booze running during Prohibition. There was a tunnel that ran underneath the hotel and traveled down 25th Street to various points in Ogden. The underground tunnel was used to smuggle alcohol, but also led to opium dens and gambling halls. The tunnels were eventually cemented shut by the city. Does this sound familiar to another place we visited, Denise? Remember the pub crawl we did in Denver started in the Blake Street Vault? Absolutely, and that was very cool. And that's what they had underneath them was a bunch of these tunnels, which was used for prohibition and to go to the opium dens and gambling halls and all kinds of stuff. And it ran from City Hall and such so that the politicians wouldn't be seen. So same thing was going on here, which I just find kind of interesting because not only did we have prohibition going on at this time, but Utah pretty much should be dry anyway because Mormons don't drink alcohol. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's kind of funny just growing up there because I know when I'd go back to visit my friends, I left just before junior high school. When I would go back, their partying was way heavier than what we had in Colorado. And I think it's because of of the prohibitive nature of of what people were under, just like prohibition raised drinking rather than getting rid of it. And I think the same thing with the the prohibition of alcohol and other things kind of raised the party because they would have huge parties like on Wednesday. At least we waited till the weekends growing up. Also, I was going through newspapers because I was trying to get some more background information on some of the deaths that are going to occur at this hotel and see if I could get some facts on it rather than just some legend type stuff. And in the process, I came across this article in December of 1948 Apparently, the Ben Lomond Hotel was caught up in a prostitution scandal. And this was something that was going on on 25th Street at several businesses, it would seem. So you've got, they're running booze down here. And then even after we've gotten through the prohibition stuff, then it seems that we've got a lot of prostitution going on. And these are nice hotels where you wouldn't think this is going on. And they'd already closed several businesses on this street because of the prostitution. And what this article was talking about, it was the Ogden Standard Examiner. And as it was telling the story, it talked about this prostitute and what they referred to as her hustler, which I guess would be her pimp, was arrested at the Ben Lomond during a raid. And closing the hotel was discussed at a commission meeting at that time. And this article was talking about that commission meeting and the mayor was heading it up and he 
had, I think the chief of police was there. And you could tell that the mayor and the chief of police at this time did not get along with each other. And he was asking people if they were satisfied with how he was handling this. And he was asking the commission, are you going to close the hotel or not? Obviously, that did not happen. But I just thought it was really interesting because you when you think this was considered one of the quote-unquote three grand hotels in this city for it to be caught up in something like this, especially back in the 40s, that must have been a big scandal. I know. I just say that they were smart prostitutes because they said, to hell with the cribs. I'm going to go to Uptown and make some real money. Yeah, I'm not doing the brothel thing. After the hotel was no longer profitable, the Eccles family sold the property in the 1960s. After the sale, some of the hotel was occupied as county offices, but the building soon fell into disrepair. In the 1980s, the hotel was renovated and much of the original grandeur was kept intact, including the chandeliers in the ballroom, the ornate ceilings, and the marble floors. The 350 rooms in the hotel were converted to a 120-suite condo hotel. Today, the Ben Loman features two restaurants, 12 short-stay suites with full kitchens, 23 corner suites, six two-bedroom suites, 58 standard suites, and six meeting rooms. The hotel is currently a part of the Choice Hotel's Ascend Collection. There are tales of strange occurrences at the hotel, and these could possibly be attributed to the fact that several bizarre and gruesome deaths, including many suicides, have happened at the Ben Loman. The 11th floor is the central hub of paranormal activity. The first story of deaths on this floor is not substantiated and could just be legend. This story involves rooms 1101 and 1102. A woman was spending her honeymoon at the hotel and was staying in room 1102. And as we're telling the story, I don't know where her groom is. You're spending your honeymoon at a hotel and the groom is nowhere to be found in this story. Does that make any sense? (laughs) I would think that, you know, pretty much you don't leave your room during your honeymoon. (laughs) I don't know. But during her stay there, she drowned in the bathtub. So this is why I'm asking, where's the groom? How did she drown in the bathtub? Hmm. Maybe he wasn't absent. I don't know. After her death, her adult son came to the hotel to collect her belongings. He checked himself into room 1101. That was the room next to where his mother had died. The son was so distraught over his mother's death that he took his own life. So you have her drowning in the bathtub in 1102 and him killing himself in 1101. And why he would have to go to the hotel to collect her belongings and would check himself in. The whole story, I can see why this is considered legend and there's not a lot to substantiate it because just common sense makes this story not make sense. But apparently these two rooms have haunting activity going on, which is maybe why this legend has cropped up. They had to come up with a story for it. Guests who stayed in rooms 1101 and 1102 have reported water in the tub running all on its own. So the bathtub's just filling itself up. We've heard about that another location that we did in the past as well. I can't remember which one. There was a hotel that it would just, the tub would just fill up on its own. Some report that they have been pushed by an unseen force. In room 1102, guests have reported hearing disembodied voices and seeing apparitions. They haven't described them, so I don't know if they're seeing a male a female, what exactly they're seeing. And then we also have some things going on in room 1106, and it was the scene of another death. A woman was living in that room while she awaited her son's return from fighting during World War II. She received word that he had been killed in action, and she died either from natural causes or a broken heart. Phone calls are received in the lobby originating from rooms on the 11th floor that are unoccupied. 
The scent of old perfume is smelled, and the elevator goes up and down with no one inside, usually stopping on the 10th or 11th floor. The night staff has reported the elevator doors in the lobby opening on their own. That would be a bit unnerving. I wonder what the scent of old perfume is like. (laughs) Do they mean like old lady perfume? Because I know that's sometimes people describe perfume that older women wear as old lady perfume because it has a... Oh, it's... Women's perfume is more cologne these days. Back then it was more floral, I think. I guess depending on which one. And so maybe it's just a a brand that was used more during those times. My mom loved White Shoulder. On March 9th, 1929, the hotel hosted the Utah Canners Association's annual convention. One of the convention attendees, Dan Rowland, invited some friends up to his room for drinks. Earlier, he had met another man staying at the hotel named Edward Spellman and invited him to the room as well. One of the women in the group had too much to drink and opted to stay in the room to lie down when the group decided to go down to the ballroom for dancing. When Roland returned to his room later that night, he found Spellman attacking the woman. Roland tried dragging Spellman down to the lobby, and the two started fighting in the hallway. Roland struck Spellman on the chin, causing him to fall back. He hit his head on the wall and died instantly. Roland was charged with Spellman's murder, but was later acquitted when it was discovered that Bellman died from a ruptured artery and not the blow to the head. Now, we don't know for sure that there's any hauntings in relation to this Spellman dying there, but they think there could be six ghosts at least in this hotel. So he is a possible candidate. And this story reminds me of Jailhouse Rock, the movie with Elvis. It's one of my favorite Elvis movies. (laughs) It's exactly why he goes to jail. He hits somebody and he hits his back of his head and kills him. So then he goes to jail for murder. So it, it does happen. In another bizarre story, in 1939, two young men came to the hotel by cab argued with the bellman outside the hotel, and took the elevator to the top floor. The owner of the hotel felt that there was something odd about these gentlemen, so she followed them to the top floor and brought them back down to the lobby. She looked around for some help, and the two men ran off again, returning to the top floor where they jumped out of a window at the end of the hallway to their deaths. There's a lot of suicide going on here. Yes, so you wonder if it's the suicides that cause the hauntings or the hauntings that are causing the suicides. It's just weird. Why would these two guys come there by cab and then head straight upstairs so they can throw themselves off the top of the hotel? It's just weird. Usually you don't have people committing suicide together anyway. Just a bizarre story. Another suicide occurred around noon on July 16, 1951. Donna Anderson, a local teacher for 20 years, leapt to her death from a ninth story window. A Deseret News article reported that Anderson's friend, Leora Macbeth, discovered her with her wrist slashed in her ninth floor suite. Anderson was still conscious and she ran past her friend and jumped out of the suite's north-facing window. Anderson had recently been in ill health and she'd been nervous on the morning of her death. Henry Topping Jr. was a night clerk at the Ben Loman Hotel. On August 24th in 1976, a 15-year-old man named Johnny Perez entered the hotel in an attempt to rob the hotel. Perez ended up stabbing Topping 44 times, killing the man. A jury of 11 men and one woman found him guilty of first-degree murder. Topping is believed to haunt the hotel. Is he the reason for the cold spots in the lobby? Or the reason sometimes why the elevator doors open up on the lobby floor all by themselves. Now remember, there was a hotel on this spot before the Ben Lomond Hotel. The Reed Hotel has its own stories to tell that could very well be contributing to the haunting activity. Three days before the hotel opened, the first death of eight occurred. The brother of the proprietor had just moved to the area because he had tuberculosis and he was staying in a room at the Reed. 
He succumbed to the disease on June 30th, 1891. A woman named Helen Van Allen was staying at the Reed Hotel in 1902 with her husband. She had suffered from various ailments for a number of years. Her husband left for work and she shot and killed herself. She was only 38 years old. This is similar to the other woman who had been suffering from ailments too. Exactly. So you have two of them. On September 26, 1921, a newly hired cook named Asugi Nakano was waiting for the freight elevator. The doors opened and he stepped in, unaware that the car was not there, and he fell three stories down the elevator shaft to his death. Mrs. Van Allen had been staying in an apartment on the third floor when she shot herself. A security guard recalls an incident on the third floor hallway where a door handle began to shake violently as he passed a room. Upon further inspection, he found the room was unoccupied. The security guard also said that the staff receives noise complaints and movement from empty rooms and or hallways at least once a week. What I always find bizarre are these stories of those telephone calls. They get a lot of those in the lobby from empty rooms. Just how does that happen? Are they dialing the phone and then there's nobody there? Do they think they're talking to somebody if the ghosts are dialing the phone? I don't know. Or is it just some somehow the energetics of a ghost causes it to dial? I don't know. Yeah, sure. Were they trying to pull some energy from the phone and accidentally dial the lobby? Just weird. In the comments of a blog post on writer Stephen Sims blogspot.com, a reader named Joanna Zobel writes of her experiences at the hotel. Quote, my husband and I stayed last February and experienced some creepy things. While talking to the front desk, I noticed the elevator doors opening and then closing and going to the fifth floor, then back down to open again while no one was in it. We also smelled a faint scent of perfume inside. At night while I was sleeping, I woke up thinking my son was pulling my arm, talking to me. I saw some kind of shape like a man wearing a hat bent over me. And we also captured an orb flying across my husband's face in a photo. End quote. Anytime I hear about a man wearing a hat, I think of a hat man. It's like, oh, shadow figure with a hat. Don't want to mess with that. I don't want to mess with a shadow figure without a hat. <laughs> That's true. I don't want them anyway they come. The history on this spot is home to so much death. Is there a reason why? Fortunately, no one has described any dark experiences with these unseen entities. And have all these deaths led to strange happenings? Have guests decided to remain here even after death? Is the Ben Loman Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. And of course, the skeptics out there, like ourselves, look at this and say, you know, there might be this much death going on in all these old hotels. And it's just there's not a lot of recorded ones. That's true. Because if you think you've got these large hotels with 300 rooms that have been open for over a century, the chances that people have died there might be kind of high. I don't know. The chances that they might have died there might be high, but I think the amount of suicides is a little bit. That's true. And this Odd. reminds me of the ghost tour that we took. I can't remember if we were in Chattanooga or if it was Nashville. One of those cities we went, it was near a Chili's parking lot, it seemed like. And he was telling us about this hotel. And he pointed up to one of the rooms and he said something like six, seven people, maybe even more, had jumped from that room. It's just another one of those, why is there so much suicide in this particular location? Right. You wonder if there was like something that just causes people to feel like really down in that area for some reason, or if there's an entity that actually causes people to. Exactly. So. Because when I think about demonic type stuff, and when you're talking about suicides, I would think that the greatest thing for the devil or a demon is for you to take your own life. And if they can drive you to do that, it's like a big accomplishment for them. 
So anytime I hear about that kind of stuff, it makes me wonder, especially when you have that many going on. Our next episode is going to be Fairfield Hills State Hospital. So another asylum, Denise. This one is in an interesting location, though, that I think a lot of people, particularly in America, are familiar with, and that is Newtown, Connecticut, where we had that terrible shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. This is in that city, so we'll be looking at that one on the next episode. We do have some reviews from over on iTunes to share with you. The first one is a five-star from Thais S., and I hope I said that right, great podcast. I've been a dedicated listener for a few months. The only critique I have is that I wish there were more because I can't get enough. Keep up the good work, ladies. Well, thanks, Thais. We appreciate that. Also from Short Stir, two of my favorite things, five stars. I love history and I love ghost stories. This is the best podcast ever because it has both. Well, thank you. I love Denise and Diane. They make history a lot of fun. They make me laugh all the time. They're great hosts. I started listening at the beginning and now I'm really close to being caught up. I haven't been on any ghost tours yet, but would love to go on one with these ladies. Keep up the fantastic work. Well, we would love to have you join us on one of our tours someday as well. Indeed. And Audrey Freak, 17. These ladies know how to entertain five stars. The show is amazing. It's the perfect mix of historical and spooky for me. Well, thank you, Audrey. Appreciate that. Yes. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Mary Ellen Coyle. Thank you. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, One Podcast at a Time.